Welcome to Legends of Weed. My name is Joanne Sukumaran. Every episode, I interview a top wind player from the bassoon or over community. Find out more about them, about their musical knowledge and insights, and what makes them tick. Stay tuned. A quick announcement before we start. I've just finished recording my first solo album called The Night Garden. It will launch this September and I hope to tour Asia during and after the summer to promote the album. There's a Patreon link in my bio and the show notes. As an independent musician, I'm really grateful for any support. Thank you and enjoy the show. And welcome to another episode of Legends of Weed. Today I have a really interesting guest. He is Christian Omar Ronas. Christian is a young and accomplished Norwegian composer and bassoonist. He is currently principal bassoon in the Baltic Opera since 2018. He studied bassoon with Robert Ronas, Doug Jensen, Ole Christian Dahl, and Klaus Tunemann. His YouTube channel has been awarded one of the top 25 channels in the world, and he contributes to the bassoon world by his many arrangements, restoration, and his continuous research for extended technique fingering. I also found out that he became a Moosman artist at age 26. Yeah, welcome to the show, Christian. Thank you very much. It's really kind of you. I have already been listening through some of your interviews in the past, and I'm really honored to be on the guest list for your podcast. Thank you so much. Oh, that's, uh, that's great to hear. Um, we had an uh, online uh, friendship for some time, and I'm really delighted now to speak to you face to face. So I think recently we um, connected again uh, because you wrote quite a lengthy piece um, talking about several topics that you feel are not being taught yeah, to classical musicians. Right? You were writing on Facebook. Could you briefly elaborate about this? Yes, absolutely. It's an interesting topic. Um, it's mostly about the universities uh, and how maybe I think that certain changes can improve the situations of the students. Uh, of course, first of all, most universities are, are great. I mean, there are great teachers there and there are at a high level. Um, also, a lot of thanks to the internet these days, you know, you have when there is an audition, the whole world can hear about this audition. And uh, really people from everywhere can come to the big professors and the level is increasing insanely much, which is fantastic. Uh, but also, the jobs are then becoming more demanding to get, and there will be more and more requirements to get a job, and people are getting more and more picky. So I think it's very important for the students then to learn the basics of what um, already professional orchestra musicians are looking for. And um, there are, for example, yeah, the list you mentioned that I wrote on Facebook has 10 subjects or 10 ideas of subjects that, in my opinion, could help or benefit a student and uh, just to mention them very shortly uh, the subject number one is how to practice mm -hmm. i can talk about this more after but briefly how to practice then uh, the study of instrument makers instrumental care uh, instrumental acoustics orchestral excerpt class how to apply for a job uh, different audition techniques tone blending and orchestral intonation. Then you have orchestral behavior and also very important orchestra traditions. Um, these are 10 different things that through my eight years of 
university studies, I have just been fortunate to learn this thing from my teachers, maybe especially Ole Christian Dahl in Mannheim and um, also Tunaman in my one semester in Madrid. And I think it's pity that actually what I benefited maybe the most from as a person through my studies was something that the universities didn't require for me to learn at all. It's not a subject. You get no points for learning these things. It doesn't uh, help you to get your diploma at all, uh, but it helped me to get a job. <laughs> so I'm just questioning, um, should maybe some of these things be considered as to actually be an obligatory subject for students? I think it would benefit people today to do that. Hmm. So perhaps, are you suggesting that the conservatory is overemphasizing the goal of getting a job rather than the full development of a student? Is that what you're saying? Mm, well, I see it as a little bit two different things uh, because uh, while you study, while you are a student, it is maybe easy to believe that if you don't win an audition for a professional orchestra, then you have sort of failed the purpose of your study somehow. Um, but I think for students, it can be easy to forget that there are also benefits from, for example, being a freelance. And with being a freelance doesn't mean you don't have the level of a professional musician. Because for me personally, I've done a lot of gigging and freelancing as well. And uh, through the orchestras and people I've met there, I have actually met many people who I experienced as more professional, both behaving-wise and playing-wise, than many of the actual professional people I have met. <laughs> Uh, and I think that professionalism doesn't automatically come with winning an audition. It's simply something that you have to learn over time or, you know, adapt yourself into. So mm -hmm. it's easy to, like I said, believe that if you don't win audition, you, you fail the studies. And it's absolutely not like this at all. There are so many possibilities today. Uh, also, you can soloist, you can, I mean, be online uh, and do a lot of activities there, create your own audience. You have pages like Patreon and these things that can support artists today, which is fantastic. So I think there is no bigger market for freelancers than today. Mm -hmm. It's probably just um, safer, no? I think, and more secure to land a contract for the first few years after you graduate. And you know you can yes. pay your... <laughs> Absolutely. No, of course, you, you have this stability. Uh, that you know that, okay, well, no matter what happens, at least I have this basic salary every month. Uh, that is, of course, a difference. <laughs> but mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't mean that it's just the only option. Mm. Well, why did you start to question the education system? Was it an observation? or? Yeah, well, I, it was after my own experience, after all, because uh, I felt that the things that I learned the most from uh, towards getting a job was things that I didn't have in the subjects. It was just something that people, as my teachers, like Ole Christian, for example, is teaching on pure goodwill just because he wants his students to do as good as possible, obviously. But I think the whole purpose of applying to a university uh, is for the university to graduate students that has a chance to get a job. And I don't think with learning how to compose a 12-tone fugue really helps you in that direction. Unless you, of course, want to become a composer or a theorist or something like this, that's a different story. But I think that should be two different kind of degrees. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, I think the responsibility really lies in the, the students' hands these days. And 
if you're lucky, then you you have a professor like Ola Christian Dao who really guides his students in the right way, no? And oh yes, uh, absolutely. Would you like to touch on some topics that you just mentioned? For example, the daily practicing. So how can one get the best um, productive and most efficient practice schedule? Do you have a method? <clears throat> yeah, sure. Uh, well, me personally, uh, I just always have my daily scales and chords and arpeggios that I do. Uh, one important thing, though, before I mention anything, is that everything I do, I do in the whole range of the instrument. Uh, I go all the way up to what is my normal highest note of the day, which is maybe an F or F sharp or a G. I play that every day. Um, and uh, after all the basic stuff, of course, it depends a little bit on what I have to do in the orchestra that day or which piece I'm learning currently. Um, so, for example, if there is a piece I learned that has a really tricky passage, find out exactly which part of that passage is tricky use those notes, pick them out and, you know, combine them in different ways, make the first note of these three difficult notes, the second one, and, you know, mix them around in all different ways and rhythms to sort of, yeah, really break it down. Uh, this can eventually help a lot for technical practicing. And then also while doing my daily things, which I will talk about is um, I try to play on at least four reads while doing my warm-ups uh, to make sure that I have a read box that is always, you know, sort of up to date. Some are young reads, some are older, but at least I know where all of them more or less are and how they develop. If you just do this every day, then hopefully your read box doesn't disappoint you too often. <laughs> of mm -hmm. course it can happen. But yeah, regarding a practice schedule, uh, there are many different good ways to, to plan this. Um, and of course, one of the maybe more famous ones now these days is well, drills by Uli Christian again that you can buy is a really good practicing system that every student of his has studied, I think, to the smallest detail. And I can highly recommend to do this. However, I think also later on, when you have really gone crazy with this, you need to figure out um, maybe more what your insecurities and what your weakness points are. Pick those out and focus only on that. Um, for example, there is a famous quote that says something like, if you always sound good in the practice room, then you're practicing the wrong things. Mm -hmm. And I think it's quite true. And uh, that mm -hmm. was something that um, Tunoman uh, told me a bit about. Uh, he told me, always try to practice one different pattern every day, which means, for example, four notes. It can be for example, and then you transpose these four notes in every tonality on every step of the scale. And then automatically you will have a different exercise every day. Why? Well, because then you always need to use your brain while you practice. If you have the same pattern absolutely every day and you play C major again and it's getting more and more easy, then eventually you don't think so much about your fingers. It's becoming like a muscle memory and you just play on autopilot and your brain is thinking about, oh, I need to buy bread and maybe I want to go for a beer later. But I don't think you, you really focus on analyzing what you're actually doing so much. So I try to have a different pattern every day. Uh, and uh, this is really developing my technique this very quickly. So for me, it makes sense also when Tuneman, you know, is saying this to his students that his students were famous at the time for being some of the best students in, in Europe and they got jobs everywhere. And this probably has something to do with that because with this uh, challenging um, way of practicing technique, it really develops you quickly. Mm -hmm. um, in the start, personally, I started to write these patterns down just so I had them. 
But with time, you, you realize it doesn't really matter so much which pattern it is. And uh, it doesn't really matter to write them down. It's all just about doing uh, different patterns um, as often as possible to really, um, how to say it, uh, look at every angle of every difficult interval, for example, to really mm -hmm. break it down to the smallest elements of the music itself. Mm. So long story short, things to include maybe in a practice schedule, technical stuff, uh, reads every day um, to, to either scrape them or to improve them somehow. Um, intonation exercises, highly essential, especially if you aim for an orchestra job, uh, both with or without a tuner or a drone or a colleague, even better. Mm. Um, also, tonguing, single tongue, double tongue, and if you dare, some triple tongue, never hurts. And especially the younger you are, the more important I think it is to, to learn, for example, double tongue, because often older musicians who doesn't know how to do double tongue start to suffer when they hit their mid-50s, uh, just because of the fact that your, your muscles are stiffening up and the tongue is not as rapid anymore. So these things is just something that is smart to have done on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, challenge yourself. Is that what you're saying in, the, in essence? No, I yes. Think. Yeah, okay. So challenge will bring the focus into the practice room. Um, another interesting topic you mentioned was um, auditioning. Do you maybe have some concrete tips for people listening in for um, applying for jobs and uh, things they can do at audition? Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, there are many different kinds of audition. Uh, and I think that if you know some tricks in advance, it can actually help you a lot because many times it's not only about the level of the musicians because the level today in general is very high, but it's many times just being able to stand out a bit from the crowd and still sounding good. <laughs> um, so, for example, I can mention like two, three tactics, for example. One of them I also included in this Facebook post lately um, and it's about if there is a screen at the audition uh, and no one can see you and the jury asks you to play something even softer than you're actually able to do, then a helpful trick is, for example, to turn yourself around 180 degrees. So you're facing away from the jury and facing away from the screen and then play because then your sound is projecting the wrong way. So away from the jury. And this will then already sound a bit different. And... Uh, of course, then you will automatically stand out a little bit in comparison to the people who didn't do this acoustical trick. So perhaps it can be a thing. Another thing, for example, is uh, it's very smart to plan an order for your excerpts in advance. Because at some auditions, uh, the jury can be kind and tell you, well, you can choose to order yourself of the excerpts. This doesn't happen every time, but it can. And if it does happen, it's good to already have that planned out. For example, uh, after I had played like a heavy excerpt, for example, Sostakovich 9, I would try to find an excerpt that is less heavy for the ambusher and rather focuses on something completely different. For example, a more technical passage or an excerpt which is focusing more on style and phrasing, such as Figaro or Cosi Fantutte, or maybe even Ravel Piano Concerto with the high E and this fast stuff there. So planning the excerpts can actually help you a lot. And then another little tip is, for example, uh, there also are very often double tongue excerpts. And uh, not all of us have a good double tongue. Uh, so for those of you who doesn't, then maybe here's a little tip for you. 
because many times you uh, have to play, for example, Beethoven Fourth or Smetana, Partly Bright, Verkaufsgebrauch, and a little way to trick the subconsciousness a little bit of the jury here is to maybe before this excerpt to play a very slow excerpt. For example, Brahms' Weiling Concerto, Second Bassoon Part, or the opening of Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony. The thing is, if you manage to create a very calm atmosphere, and then suddenly play Beethoven 4, uh, it might feel slightly faster for the jury uh, than what you actually played because of the state of the atmosphere from Brahms or Tchaikovsky that is still sort of laying in the air, and they didn't expect this sudden eruption to just happen. Uh, so that can sometimes save you a bit instead of doing all the fast ones in a row and everyone is sort of, you know, their inner metronome is already fast. So that can be something. Uh, maybe a last one. Um, when you tune, uh, normally play your tune, yeah, for intonation purposes, you play it long and you do whatever you normally do. But at the end of it, what I normally did is that I played also a short A, like a staccato or similar. This is something normally the jury doesn't even bother about thinking about why you play the short A in the end. But by doing this, you can get a very clear view of the acoustics in the hall. And this is especially helpful if you don't have a chance to play in this hall before the audition finds place. So then you know, for example, in some, ex some excerpts that if you have five seconds of acoustics after you, then some excerpts will sound better a little bit slower. If it's extremely dry, you can speed up a bit or you can play with the room in a different way. These are maybe things that is helpful, can be helpful for people to, to do and to know about. Oh, that's really smart. I never thought about that. The short A. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Immediately checking the acoustics. Good one. So, um, I mean, you have such an impressive CV. Uh, sometimes I... Uh, I, I, I run out of words <laughs> for the first time in my interviews. <laughs> um, what motivates you? I mean, you are really very driven. I mean, I, I admire you. You have done so much, so many things at such a young age. What motivates you? What drives you? Well, uh, to be honest, it's, uh, it has a lot to do with just curiosity. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm just curious. Uh, and of course, it depends a bit on the, on the subject too. Um, for example, if it's about, I also like, for example, to restore concertos and stuff like this. And for me, the motivation and inspiration to do that is simply to, to know how does this music sound? This music has not been heard for maybe 200 years. And even if it's only a MIDI file I'm able to produce, then I will be the first person who gets to hear this music for maybe 200 years. For me, this is just really exciting. And the curiosity is really driving me towards that. And uh, playing-wise, if I learn a new piece, I'm just curious about, so how, how well am I able to do this? How will my interpretation catch the listener's attention? How can I formulate my story through this music somehow? So it's not, I'm not really inspired by all the great people out there. Sure, they're amazing too, but really just curiosity. I think that's my main word for inspiration. Hmm. Okay, so curiosity drives your all your research, is it? Okay. Yeah, research as well. But uh, curiosity is really the, the main word that lies behind most of my <laughs> motivation, I think. Okay. Could you name us some of your biggest influences? Any people or artists that who have uh, heavily influenced you? 
Uh, yes, of course. <clears throat> um, there are really many. It's quite difficult to say. Uh, of course, as a bassoonist, I just I will always mention my teachers. If not, I wouldn't have studied with them if they were not uh, inspirational to me. Yeah. So, of course, I have to mention my father, Robert Rannes, and Dag Jensen, Ulf Christian and, and Klaus Dornemann, of course. Uh, but to be honest, when I come home, uh, I things that maybe inspire me more as a musician than, and not just as a student, a bassoon student, is um, actually the internet, what it has to offer. Uh, for example, you know, you can listen to Rachmaninoff play the piano, you can listen to Brahms playing the piano, you can listen to string players such as Oistrach, uh, Heifetz, uh, Rostropovich, you can, you know, see Stravinsky conduct the Firebird, you can listen to lectures of Karajan and Bernstein talking. This I find very inspiring and it's out there for free, there's something everyone can just watch no matter where you're from, as long as you have internet, it's there. And I mean, these are some of the biggest personalities in music history and you can just listen to them and basically have this your private little class with them so this i find very inspiring and i have learned a lot from that and I, that is something i would recommend everyone to check out yeah actually i i listen to quite a lot of um, uh, talks and master classes by violinists and uh, yeah. i was listening to one by nicola benedetti and i think ah. With Nikki is this new series. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. And the last one she was talking about motivation and inspiration. So that one uh, got my attention because I think you know maybe after many hours in the practice room you do need some kind of outside inspiration, you know, to sure. have, have some life outside to keep going, right? In the practice room. Absolutely, and uh, yeah. I think that's very important, especially for artists. Uh, it's something I often say um, that without impressions, there is no expression. I mean, you need to feel something from the outside to be able to absorb that and then formulate something yourself as an artist. So it's mm -hmm. absolutely important to also have time to do other things than just to be in a practice room. Mm -hmm. So um, talking about the internet, right? And uh, I think the internet has uh, changed so much of the, the landscape and opportunities for musicians. So how do you think we can promote or, you know, or save the bassoon? What do you have some ideas? Uh, yes, I do have some ideas. Uh, and a lot of it is quite simple, actually. It's just simply being active on the platforms where the, maybe the younger generations uh, are, which means online. Um, because to get the younger generations interested in the bassoon, then the bassoon needs to be available for them somehow. Most of them don't have a bassoonist next door. Maybe they are the only one in their little village who have this interest, you know? Uh, and I think considering the younger generations are online, then the, the thing that we bassoonists should maybe do more of is to actually share our recordings, photos and thoughts about our instrument, because this can maybe already be enough for some people to take the step to try out the instrument themselves. Now, however, however, this is requiring from us, you know, that we uh, are able to see ourselves happy with what we're able to do and not wait until the day where you maybe will sound like Klaus Thunemann before you dare to put something online. Because most of us will never sound like Klaus Thunemann. And even Klaus Thunemann has haters as well. So, I mean, no matter who you are and how good you play, you can be Azzolini and whatever, but there are people who doesn't like this too. And if people doesn't like them, 
then come on, what do you have to lose? You know. Uh, so I think it's very, very important to just let yourself go a bit. And after all, we are musicians because we like to perform, we like to present ourselves, but online somehow we are often very we are not daring anymore it's like a different stage you don't dare to enter somehow and this i think is pity yes i remember we had this conversation about online recording <laughs> yes we did i think it's the online really... the snow. <laughs> yeah okay so um do you have any interesting moments in the orchestra? Maybe you could tell us about your first time playing right on spring. Could you remember that moment? Yeah, I, I can remember that. <laughs> it was quite funny, actually. I was uh, a student at the Norwegian Academy of Music, and uh, I played the first bassoon together with the school orchestra at the Norwegian Academy of Music. My teacher at the time was Dark Jensen. And, of course, I, I told him, you know, okay, I have to play... Sakte, right to spring, and I would like to have some lessons on this, and I really prepared my best. I took the best reads I had, you know, went for it. Of course, when the concert came out, I was getting more and more nervous. Normally, to be honest, I'm not too nervous, but first time I played Sakte, yes, I was nervous. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, you enter the stage, you get your best read to make sure everything is fine. You play your tuning A, everything works so far. The conductor comes in, everyone stands up, everyone sits down, and the silence begins. Uh, which is the most frightening moment of everything, uh, especially right there and then. And it's your first time and everything. You check the opening of the read. Okay, everything looks good. You double-check the fingering, you know, is everything fine? And yeah, luckily it was. <clears throat> and I just felt, okay, now I managed to calm myself down and I'm sort of ready to do this. So I eventually start to breathe in and I just look. At the conductor, he's, you know, giving me the, just a hand or a nod saying, you know, okay, go for it. And I look into the hall uh, because I wanted, you know, to really be open and present what I have to give. And <laughs> just when I was breathing in and looking into the hall, I realized that I got eye contact with the person. And that person was Doug Jensen. He was in the hall. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought... It was like a lightning going through me, you know, realizing that Doug Jensen is sitting there. I, I got so creeped out. I was, I got extremely afraid. <laughs> of course, he probably didn't even notice, but for me, it was, I was a total wreck of nerves back then. Uh, and, was he uh, in the first or something? Or? No, I, I mean, the, I don't actually remember how the opening, like the first note, how I entered. But uh, it went okay, uh, from what I can remember. But it, it was such a terrifying moment. Uh, and then, of course, I had to, you know, ask him after, what on earth were you doing there? Could you please let me know next time? I was not prepared for this. But he was at least supportive, and I was very thankful for that. But it was every time after that, when I play Right to Spring, I always have this in my mind that who knows, maybe an important person is in the audience. You never know who you're playing for. It sounds like a good anecdote, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Would you consider teaching one day, Christian? I, mean, I think you have so much to share, yeah. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, I love to teach. Uh, so far, I, I'm not uh, working anywhere as a teacher permanently, but I have been doing some masterclasses, and there is more stuff coming up also. 
uh, mostly where I have been active is that is Patsonia Hagetiste in Postnang, where also Ola has been, and Roger Bernstingel, Sebastian Stemson, Edwin Halverson, great people. Uh, I have been there, and there is more coming up there. So right now, I'm mostly there. But absolutely, yes, uh, I'm very interested in, uh, in teaching. It probably will happen, hopefully, soon, someplace. <laughs> yeah, I saw this video of Audun playing all these high notes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So I actually have a book here, Twelve Person Study, and oh. uh, sometimes I do this when I'm tired of uh, doing drills. Oh. Yeah, they they keep you really in a good form. So, um, what made you look for this crazy uh, high notes? I mean, it seems so impossible to play them. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, well, to be honest. Uh... I was writing these studies uh, already when I was studying my bachelor myself. So I was a young bassoon student myself when I wrote this stuff. And mm. um, some of the reasons why I wanted something else was because I was a bit tired of playing the classics, Milde and Weissenborn, on repeat constantly. Sure, they are very important. Every bassoonist should play Milde and Weissenborn. But in my opinion, musically, it's not really what talks to me the most. <laughs> uh, so I wanted. The idea was to have some new bassoon studies that could both be presenting tricky combinations, but also that were made in such a way that they sounded interesting enough that they could maybe be played as a solo piece, almost like a caprice or something like this. Like, you know, with Paganini caprices, there are sure studies you play them for your teacher, but you can also play them in a recital. So that was a little bit of the goal. It was quite difficult to balance there. But uh, how I wrote them, yeah, I... Um, I often composed it with the bassoon at my side. And sometimes I would, for example, try to find technical problems on the instrument uh, and then find several of them and then somehow fit those combinations into the music that I was writing. And then sometimes adapting the tonality to the problem somehow. For example, you can see the first bar in study number one is a C sharp, D sharp, low register, mm -hmm. 16 notes fast. It's famous mm -hmm. for being a famous interval. So we already started on a difficult note. <laughs> yeah, I think they're really quite handy because like for the Vivaldi, you, you picked out certain yeah, like the arpeggio yes. motifs that happen a lot in the concerto. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And it's actually a mix. It's um, yeah, from Vivaldi E minor, for example, but also Queen of Sheba is in there. That's why it's Handel also. And I, I tried to incorporate as many things as I could in as little space as possible. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I, I, at least I, I was happy with them in the end, and I was very fortunate to have it as my first published work. So I'm very proud of that. But um, regarding the high notes in there, um, there is basically two stories about that, or maybe three. Uh, one, uh, the first thing when I really thought about that the high notes are difficult, or high notes is something that I should practice, was actually uh, when my father was giving a lesson in our house to Audun long, long, long time ago. And of course, for me, both of them sounded fantastic. And, uh, you know, I wish I could be at that level. I was just a kid at the time. And then after the lesson, I just entered the room and I just wanted, you know, to talk with Audun. And, you know, I just found it very inspiring. And then for some reason, I don't know why, I guess it was maybe a bit related to Audun's lesson somehow, but that he demonstrated some crazy high notes it was probably from his piece called Christ of Via Dolorosa, where he has to play a high A flat or something like that. And then I remember Audun, he said something similar as, uh, 
you know, Christian, you should know that your father, there is no one who can really play the high notes like he does. And for some reason, that was just said, I guess, randomly, but for me, that was a quote that really stuck to me for some reason. And I started to admire him quite a lot for that. Thought, wow, how can you do that? You know? Uh, so I started also to push myself a little bit. Of course, I was inspired. And eventually, I could also play play that. And I played that piece on a recital, and it went okay. But I wanted to sort of push it more. And then um, it's actually thanks to YouTube again, because on YouTube, I discovered a guy called Steve Harris-Wangler, who I later dedicated my third bassoon study to. It's written in the book also. He uh, is, um, I believe, an American bassoonist who today is working in Spain. And he posted almost like 10 years ago, I think, videos on YouTube of insanely high notes on the bassoon, like notes I have just never heard before. Uh, it was completely new to me. It was like a different instrument. Uh, mm -hmm. So I was just inspired, you know, and asked him, how on earth is this even possible? So he taught me some things. And uh, after that, I tried to compete with him just on my own basis. I didn't tell him that I'm competing with him, but just to push myself, trying to compete. And then eventually now, I think I have surpassed him with at least an octave. So Steve, hurry up. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then of course the third reason, which is maybe the more important reason, uh, is the fact that bassoonists often struggle with high notes. And uh, if I were able to find any way to just might make the life slightly easier for some bassoonists out there by maybe finding a new fingering or some kind of solution to improve things up there, then I, I would be very happy to do so. Because I believe that if you can play higher than necessary, then the normal high notes are already considered quite low, so it becomes easier for you to play it. And for example, if you play a piece that requires a high F, and the high F is the absolutely highest note you're able to play, then most likely it will be seen as a very big accomplishment to get this note. So I would try to do more than necessary. That, that's maybe a good, uh, a good thing to remember. And uh, also an important notice is that if you start to practice the high notes when you actually need them, then it's already too late. <laughs> They mm -hmm. should be played daily in the daily mm -hmm. scales and chords. That's the only way to get it fluent. Mm. Wow. And it sounds like a great mindset to have that uh, yeah, you're always uh, challenging yourself beyond your level so that you're yes. ready for the moment. Right? Yeah, is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Of course, there is always a question, you know, uh, how high is really useful to learn. Of course, now lately I've been posting uh, some stuff, you know, playing piccolo flute range uh, stuff. This is, of course, not necessary. This is just to push myself more, just to see how ridiculously this can get. Uh, but I would say that it's useful up to maybe a high C or something, around an octave above sacra. should be possible for most people to do. Okay. Um, would you like to talk about your collaboration with uh, Ben Moosman? Because um, I also play a Musman bassoon. Um, how did this um, partnership start to work on the mechanics and the extra keys? <clears throat> yeah, uh, that uh, I cannot deny that comes from my father. Because, uh, well, he played a Musman when I got my first bassoon, so I automatically was introduced to what he did. So I got the Fagotino by Musman when I was five, and I've been playing on Musman ever since. Um, and I always remember that my father's bassoon was very advanced when it came to key work. And he already uh, worked a lot together with Musman on developing these things, yeah, such as the high F sharp, for example, that is thanks to 
dad and Muslim. <laughs> also a funny story there, but I can save it for later. But they did a lot of crazy things together that really resulted in a lot of development. So I found this very inspiring. And uh, I wanted my instrument first to be as similar to his as possible key-wise. And then from there, try to push it more, which is why I attempted to do. That's why also I was taking contact with Atmosman and presenting him some ideas. Some of them were good. Some of them probably didn't work that well. But even though it didn't work, and probably Musman realized that much before me, he was always very patient, open, and helpful, which is not uh, something to take for granted from a, um, such an important person. Um, so I was very thankful for that. So I owe him a lot of thank yous for his um, patience with me. Uh, no, but basically it was just, you know, when you have problems on the instruments and of course you can just practice it for 20,000 hours and eventually you'll be able to play it. But if you can just take a shortcut and either add a key or add a roller or just do something physically with the instrument to just solve the problem, then why not? Mm -hmm. So there were some things like this that, for example, uh, one of the things that I, I like a lot is you know, on the whisper keys on your left thumb, sometimes on the A whisper key and C whisper key, you can have a connection to the octave key that also locks, like, or the piano key or whatever you call it, the one that shuts down the mm. lock on the um, yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, this is, in most cases, great. But in the very few occasions where we have to play higher, like really high stuff, we need to play like Ligeti Violin Concerto or Bernstein with high Fs and high Gs and stuff like this, then this connection up there is limiting you because you need that octave band to be open to make these notes resonate. So what me and Musman did was then to make this connection movable so I can move it up and move it down for whatever I need it for. Stuff like this sold many hours of practice. <laughs> so, yeah, I really owe him a lot for that. And there are more projects coming up, but first I need some more time and some more money. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Rulers are not cheap. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, coming to the final question, if you could have lunch with any composer, living or dead, who would it be? Who would you invite to lunch? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I guess my typical answer it would probably be Beethoven I guess but this is probably something most people would say uh, but if I would have a little bit less obvious answer then I would maybe choose a person you know who I could firstly learn a lot from but also I find quite original and in my opinion deserve more attention that he has and that is Grabin for example that could be interesting it would probably be not it wouldn't be for a cup of coffee it would probably be for some absinthe or something of his choice <laughs> But still, I can imagine it would be quite an adventure. Okay. And, um, yeah, um, if you were not a musician, uh, what other profession would you choose? Uh, well, most likely it would still be something within arts, I can imagine. Um, and maybe even some things connected to what I do already. So for example, digging more into instruments. So for example, an instrument maker, that could be interesting. Uh, a publisher is something I could be interested in doing. But also, yeah, other things in art, such as, for example, become a painter or something like this. I'd need to somehow be able to express myself through something. Uh, so I think 
something like this would then be an appropriate direction for me. Okay. Hey, yeah, thank you so much for your time. Do you have some suggestions of who you would like me to interview next on this podcast? Uh, oh, thank you. Uh, oh, that's a good question. Uh, there are so many good people out there, but um, maybe also some of the really older uh, maestros out there, if you get connection with them, that would could be a goldmine for future bassoonists. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. Because you never know how long they stick around. <laughs> it's true, yeah. I, I, I will try and work on that. Uh, I don't. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you so much as yeah. well. Hope to meet you finally one day in person. Hopefully. Probably soon. If you have enjoyed this podcast, could you please take a moment to rate or subscribe? It really helps the podcast be more visible in the iTunes or App Store. Feel free to send in any suggestions or feedback to me via Gmail. Thank you and see you again. Bye.